You can take your Bibles and turn them with me to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. So last week we, uh, we closed 2018, and we looked at Psalm chapter 1, and our focus was on how to have a happy new year. And the message today really is going to expand and take a deeper dive into what we had begun to consider uh, last week. So we're in Philippians chapter 4 this morning, and as you're turning there, I want you to think about this question. How would you like to experience more contentment, more satisfaction in your life in 2019 compared to 2018? Some of you in this room might be in a near constant state of discontentment. There's always something that's just stirring up discontentment and dissatisfaction in your life. You're never truly happy. You're never truly at peace. Uh, There may be others here where where your sense of contentment uh, ebbs and flows, and, and just when it seems like your head is in a good state, something comes along in your life and pulls the rug out from under whatever contentment you may have had. And what makes our quest for contentment more difficult and frustrating is that practically everything in American culture, it seems, is designed to breed discontent. Uh, From television shows uh, to the commercials on the shows designed to kind of stir up that sense of of discontent, Uh, that gadget that was so awesome a few years ago is nowhere near as great as the new upgraded model, and you got to have that, right? You can't have the old stuff. you got to have the, the new stuff. Uh, or you're not really enjoying life to the fullest unless you drink this particular beer. And so you see on the commercials, they're all partying and having a great time and, and, and drinking, you know, Michelob, and somehow they all have six-packs and great abs, even though they're drinking tons of beer. I don't know how that works, but that's fantasy land on TV for you. And so you get discontent watching that. I'd like to drink beer and have abs, but I can't. (laughs) But then it goes beyond that, right? Uh, Movies, uh, uh, books, music, we get bombarded with so many messages that are geared, it seems, to make you unhappy with your current circumstances, uh, your job, your wardrobe, your car, your house, your wife your husband, your kids, your singleness, uh, the place where you live, wherever that might be. And even if we, have, we never consume any external media at all, I guarantee you that the natural disposition of our sinful hearts is to pull us towards a state of discontentment. And how we handle our struggle with discontent can have massive implications, right? Discontentment can ruin lives wreck marriages, steal our joy, destroy our witness for Christ, and most significantly, can obscure our vision of God and His glory in our lives. We just sung, Be Thou My Vision. That's what we want, right? We want to have a vision of Christ in all things, always set before us. So my hope and my prayer, I've been praying this for this past week as I've been preparing this message will be that God will use His Word to effect change in your life so that you will experience godly contentment more than ever, that for 2019 you will grow in your experience of true contentment. So let's take a look at the Word of God this morning and trust that He will help us. We're in Philippians chapter 4, and we're going to start at verse 10 and read on down through verse 13. 
Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Uh, Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Let's pray. The grass withers, the flower fades, the Word of the Lord endures forever. And the Word of the Lord is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. And so, Father, I pray that You would, that you would wield the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God this morning, to, to cut and to heal, uh, to, to, to cut us in a way that exposes the sin in our lives and the, the things in our lives that are obscuring our vision of Christ and His glory and, and are holding us back from truly enjoying You and experiencing You. And then, Father, I pray that Your Word would heal, as it so wonderfully does, bringing comfort and and encouragement to our hearts. Father, I can't, I don't have the power to change lives. I don't have the power to, to make people in this room experience the kind of biblical contentment that they need to experience. I can't do it, but I'm trusting You, Holy Spirit, that You will do it through the Word this morning and in spite of a weak preacher. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I just realized I forgot to tell you to stand, but I usually do that. Paul's letter to the Philippian church is remarkable for a number of reasons. Uh, this is a letter that is filled with, uh, to the brim with joy. Uh, it's a letter that's filled with peace and humility and contentment. And what makes that kind of attitude remarkable is when you consider under what circumstances and conditions Paul was in when he was writing this letter. Paul's in prison. He's unjustly in jail. He's being persecuted for the sake of preaching the gospel, and he doesn't know when he's going to get out of jail. And as a matter of fact, he could be executed for all he knows. And if you go back through the letter, you'll read about some other pressures and challenges that Paul is having to deal with. And yet, in the middle of all of this, the letter still is somehow bursting with joy. He is in a state of complete contentment. And I think that if we can really get a hold of what the Spirit of God is showing us in these verses through Paul, I think that our lives can be really significantly changed and transformed. Uh, The Greek word that Paul uses that our Bibles translate as content conveys the idea of sufficiency, uh, the sense of not lacking anything, of being satisfied. Interestingly, the the pagan Stoic Greek philosophers use this word very often. It was regarded uh, regarded by them to be the Uh, the highest of all virtues. It was used to describe the attitude of a man independent of all things and all people relying on himself and on his innate resources, unmoved and unshaken by circumstances because of his independent self-sufficiency and serenity. Uh, Probably one of the most famous of the Greek Stoics was Seneca, and he said, the happy man is content with his present lot no matter what it is, and is reconciled to his circumstances. 
Now, Paul takes this word, content, the same word, and he applies it to himself, but, but he uses the word not in the exact same way as the Stoics. He's going to put an interesting spin on it. Now, this whole section from Paul regarding contentment is part of Paul's expression of gratitude concerning the gift that the church in Philippi sent him. Look at verse 10. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. The background here is that the Philippian church has sent Paul a gift to help provide for his needs. Roman prisons were much different than prisons today, where the government provides for everything for that prisoner. That's not how it was then. People held captive in Roman prisons were totally dependent on outside support uh, for their needs, so from friends or family, from other people on the outside. Uh, And so Paul here is expressing his gratitude to the church for being one of those people on the outside that's helping to provide for his needs. They sent him this, this gift. But lest he be misunderstood as saying that his joy and contentment are rooted in the gifts, and lest the church think that he is hinting for more gifts, sometimes people do that, right? They, 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 they oh, thank you so much. All this, and, and, and what they're really doing is in their thanks, they're also trying to drop a few hints that maybe a little bit more would be you know, good as well. It's not what Paul is doing here. Look what he says in verse 11. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And that's the first thing that I want us to see this morning is that biblical contentment is not found in circumstances. Uh, Paul says that no matter what situation I'm in, I'm content. That is the exact opposite of how many of us live, right? Uh, Many of us say, uh, yeah, I can be content, sure. Depending on the circumstances, we tend to live totally at the mercy of our circumstances. We are victims of circumstance, and our our sense of, of contentment and peace rises and falls based on every shifting circumstance. So, if things are going good, we're confident and we are on top of the world. If things are going bad, we are in panic and in despair. And however the wind of circumstances is blowing at any given time totally determines whether or not we experience contentment. That's just a natural way of life for, for many of us. We don't even, even think about it. It just, it just happens. Some of you are like, yeah, of course, that's, that's how it is. It's so natural to us. And so when we hear Paul say that I'm content in any kind of circumstance, we might feel like Paul is an alien, or that he's out of touch with reality. What planet are you on, Paul? But Paul was more in touch with reality than anyone in this room, I would dare say. Paul has experienced both extremes that life had to offer. Look at verse 12. He says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. I know how to be brought low, he says. In other words, I know how to be humbled or humiliated or abased. It's the same word that Paul uses a couple of chapters back in Philippians 2.8 to speak of Jesus who humbled Himself, who was abased, who was brought low uh, by becoming obedient to the point of death. And then Paul talks about knowing how to abound. 
One commentator writes that Paul knew how to share in Christ's humiliation and how to share in his glorious riches. In this, in this life, Paul has been repeatedly beaten to an inch of his life, but he also had been caught up to the third heaven. <clears throat> so, you've got Paul from one end of the spectrum to another, and through it all, he experiences contentment. He says in verse 12, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. <clears throat> so, there were times where life was really good for Paul. He had a lot to eat. <clears throat> he, had, he had a lot of money. A member of the Philippian church was Lydia, after all, and she was very wealthy. Likely, Paul enjoyed great feast in her family's home and perhaps a nice guest room with a soft bed to stay the night in and, and financial support from that family. There were times where ministry was a little smoother for him. On the flip side, Paul had more than his share of rough times. As a matter of fact, he says in uh, 2 Corinthians, <clears throat> five times... I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. He goes on to say, A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness. You getting the point here? There's a lot of danger going on in Paul's life. Uh, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold, and in exposure. So these ministry extremes, the highs and the lows, are the backdrop of what Paul is talking about here in Philippians chapter 4. And Paul is experiencing a contentment that is totally independent of circumstances. Good times can come and good times can go. He can be in a prison cell or in the home of a wealthy convert. He could have plenty of choice foods or not know where his next meal is coming from. He could be well-liked and respected, or he could be mistreated and slandered and unjustly prisoned, imprisoned. And his sense of contentment and peace remain the consistent constant anchor in the middle of life's shifting circumstances. So how would you like to have that? How would you like to have what Paul had? As you think about the past year, 2018, with all of its highs and lows and ups and downs, and as you think about 2019, and, and you've got hopes for this year, but there are looming challenges as well. In light of all those things, how would you nevertheless like to grow in your sense of contentment regardless of your circumstances? How much would it radically transform everything you do in life? Think about how it would transform your marriage, your job, just your general day-to-day -day life. Think about how much of what we do is influenced by our sense of contentment in any given moment. It drives so much of what we do, doesn't it? If I'm not feeling content, if I'm not feeling at peace and satisfied, it's going to completely affect how I deal with my kids at the end of a long, hard, trying day. My wife and my kids will pay the price for my lack of contentment. And they're probably saying, amen. 
How many times, how many times have we sinned because we were discontent and dissatisfied with something, and that sense of dissatisfaction was the fuel for us doing something that we know that we shouldn't do, but our desperation for contentment drives us to seek that contentment in anything. Now, let's go back into the prison cell with Paul. He's sitting here content and satisfied and even joyful and peaceful. I want that. I'll bet you want that too. So, how does he do it? What's the key? What's the secret to this kind of rock-solid contentment? Paul tells us in verse 13. He says, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Now, that verse is probably one of the most popular verses in the Bible and probably one of the most misapplied verses in the whole Bible, right? Oftentimes, we tend to take this verse and we turn it into a kind of sanctified pep talk. You can do it. You can do anything you want to do because He strengthens you. And so you have athletes who post this verse in their locker rooms. They're about to go out onto the football field, and they are pumping themselves up, and they are thinking, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me, including clobbering my opponent. You've got businessmen who apply this verse to help them convince themselves that they can be successful and rise to the top of their company because I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. You have people who believe that they're going to accomplish all of their goals for 2019 because they can do all things through Christ who strengthens them. But here's the problem. What happens when you use that verse and you lose the ball game? What happens when you apply this verse to the workplace and you don't make it to the top and have all of the success that you dreamed of having in 2019? As a matter of fact, what happens when you use this verse and you get fired? Now, all of a sudden, the verse is not so encouraging, is it? It's discouraging if you don't understand what Paul's showing you here. You see, the problem is is that we often take this verse and we think about it in the context of triumphs of accomplishing our goals, of fulfilling our dreams and desires. That's not what Paul's getting at here. That's not the point. Paul says, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Well, what are the all things? Look back at verse 12. Half of those things are not what we would consider triumphs. They are not things that we would want to do or experience. What are some of the all things that Paul is talking about? What can he do? He can be brought low. He can face hunger through Christ who strengthens him. He can face need through Christ who strengthens him. Now, who thinks of those things when they think of Philippians (laughs) 4.13? Nobody thinks of that. So, Paul here is not saying that God is going to help you accomplish your dreams. Instead, Paul is saying that even in the most difficult circumstances, even when things are not going my way according to my preferences and plans, even when my dreams don't come true and things don't turn out according to the way that that I was thinking that they would turn out, that they should turn out, even in those situations, I can flourish. 
I can be satisfied. I can be content. I can handle anything that comes my way, good and bad, because my deepest satisfaction is not found in a hot meal or in wealth or in winning the football game or in getting the raise. They're found rather in Christ who strengthens me, in Christ who is all-sufficient for me in every situation that I face. If I have Him, I have everything I need, and therefore I can be content. Which leads to the other observation that biblical contentment is found in Christ. Now, unless you really believe that, you will not experience Philippians 4.13 kind of contentment. So, we've got to pray to God. We've got to pray to God big time that God would increase our faith to really, really believe this. And we must hold one another in this church accountable to embracing this, that if all we have in Christ is Christ, then we have all that we need. And, and, and to like be, be satisfied in that. Because He's not just enough. He's more than enough. You see, for Paul... The end game was not a change in circumstances. The end game was not immediate relief from affliction. As much as he would have loved that, of course Paul would love to get out of prison. But that was not the end game. That was not the end goal. Instead for Paul, the goal, the target, the bullseye for Paul was Christ. And knowing and seeing and savoring Him more, we know this because of how Paul talks elsewhere in Philippians when he says things like this in chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me, to live is Christ, to die is gain." Paul's main interest is not getting out of jail. That would be my main interest if I was in jail. That's not his main interest. Paul's main interest is not escaping the headsman's axe, which, by the way, one day he's going to get. Paul's main interest is that Christ be glorified in his body in good times or bad, in life or by death. For in, in, in Paul's mind, to live is Christ. In other words, if he lives, if he goes on living, his life is going to be all about Jesus and knowing and loving and serving him more. But when he dies, there will be gain. Why? Because he will be absent from the body, but present with the Lord Jesus, whom he loves so much, and therefore he will know and experience Jesus even more, so things just get even better. So it's like a win win for Paul. Or if you look at Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, you'll read him saying things like, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. So, Paul sees Christ not a hot meal, not a comfortable life, not release from prison or escape from martyrdom. He sees Christ as the most valuable possession that he can have. And if losing other things means he gains more of Christ, it is a good deal. 
And so this really sheds light on Paul's mindset when you get to Philippians 4, and he says, I can be content in any situation, good or bad, pleasurable or painful, because I have Christ. I cannot tell you how much faith it's going to take for you and I to believe that in 2019. I know it's going to take a lot of faith for me. Lord, increase, increase our faith. Now, don't get the wrong idea, because it's not that Paul is unmoved by his circumstances in the way the Stoics taught that you should be. The pagan Greek version of contentment was like you were some sort of unfeeling robot. You're like Spock, <clears throat> some kind of Vulcan. Uh, that's not it at all. This contented and satisfied Paul <clears throat> is the same Paul who describes the Christian life as one that is sorrowful and rejoicing. Paul got stirred up. Paul wept his eyes out. Paul felt gladness and he felt pain. Paul experienced the gamut of human emotions. But Underneath it all, underneath it all was a confidence in the Lord and a deep contentment and assurance that regardless of what happened, Christ would be more than enough. Because unlike the pagan Stoics, contentment is not about the sufficiency of self in all things. And unlike modern Western people today, contentment is not about the sufficiency of our possessions or our preferences in all things. It's about the sufficiency of Christ in all things. That's where Paul parts ways from both the Stoic Greek philosophers and modern secular America. And we really see this played out in Paul's life in 2 Corinthians 12. You can turn there with me if you'd like. I'm going to read it in a moment, so if you just want to sit and listen, that's fine few books back, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and in chapter 12, verse 7, Paul is talking about some difficult experiences that he's having, and he says, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, now Paul is referring to some great experiences that God has given him in his life, including being caught up into the third heaven, that would swell anybody's head. Paul says, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. And three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Now, we don't know exactly what the thorn in Paul's flesh was. There's some debate over that. Many think it was a physical ailment that caused Paul a lot of trouble. And Paul repeatedly prayed that God would take this thorn away from him. Now, notice, that's not wrong for Paul to do. It's okay to bring your request for relief before God. If you're sick, you should pray for healing. If you have difficulties in your relationships, you should pray for healing in those and restoration in those. If you are in financial difficulty, you should, you should pray for relief and help. So, it is not, so being content in Christ doesn't mean that you don't pray for relief in certain situations that are putting pressure on you. <clears throat> so Paul prays for relief, and God's not going to rebuke him for it. He's not going to be punished for that. It's okay when you're going through difficulty to pray for relief, but here's the thing. We cannot put our hope for happiness and satisfaction in a, in a change of circumstance. 
And that's often what we do. We bank all of our hopes. We put all of our eggs in that basket of that circumstance that is causing us pain changing. We can't, we can't do that because the circumstance may not change in this life. And that's often where you and I go off the rails, I think, right? We pray for change, and God doesn't do what we want Him to do. God doesn't do what we think that, in our wisdom, He should do. And then, when He doesn't do it, we get mad, and we get upset and angry with God and discontent. And when that happens, that shows you where your hope really lies. Now here, God didn't heal Paul's thorn. Instead, God gave him something even better. Look at what God says in verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. You know what he's saying? That's another way of saying you can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. He doesn't give Paul healing. He gives Paul more of God. God is, in essence, saying, Paul, you need a greater glimpse of me and my all-satisfying, sustaining presence and power more than you need healing. And that greater glimpse of me will come through a greater experience of the sufficiency of my grace as I carry you through your affliction. And so what is Paul's response? Is it anger? Is it bitterness? Is it grumbling and complaining? I said Paul's response, not Deemer's response. That's, that's Deemer's response often. No, his response isn't any of those things. It's weird. <laughs> it's boasting. It's boasting. And so Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content, there's that word again, content, for the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Evidently, Paul's ultimate hope for satisfaction and contentment and joy are not rooted in a change of circumstances, because if they were, he would be pretty mad at God for not removing that thorn. But Paul recognizes, again, remember Paul's vision, Paul's goal, Paul's end game is God and the glory of God. That's what he loves. And Paul recognizes in this moment that his weaknesses are the platform, are the theater, so to speak, in which God's glory and power will be on visible display all the more compared to if the thorn was taken away. And remember what we read Paul saying in Philippians chapter 2, that his hopeful expectation was that Christ be glorified in his body. And so his attitude is, if I and the world can catch a greater glimpse of Christ through these things, then I will be content. So when we go back to Paul and his prison cell in Philippians 4, we can really understand why Paul is content, why Paul is satisfied. He is confident not only that Christ will give him the strength to live in any kind of situation, good and bad, but also that a manifestation of God's strength in Paul's weakness will give Paul a greater experience and recognition of God's glory, and that's ultimately what Paul wants more than anything else. And so for us, brothers and sisters, our biggest need... Our biggest need, we have many needs, but our biggest need is not a change in our circumstances. Our biggest need is to see and savor Christ more. 
And if it takes times of abundance and prosperity and good times to do that, then bring it on. And if it takes times of difficulty and hardship and suffering, are you going to fill in the blank? Are you afraid to fill in the blank like I am? It shows then how much we love the glory of God. God, help us to say, if it takes those times to experience more of you, to see more of you, to appreciate more of you, to recognize more of your beauty even more, if it, if it takes those times of difficulty, then bring it on. God, help us to say that and mean it. Help us to say with Habakkuk, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, though I am not healed, though my financial situation does not improve, though my relationship may not improve, Though I lose my job, yet, yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. Here in Habakkuk, you find a combination of Philippians 4 and 2 Corinthians 12. You have here in Habakkuk a dependence on the strength of the Lord, and you have deep abiding contentment and satisfaction in this God who gives all sufficient grace in the midst of difficult circumstances. This is not health and wealth gospel. This is not prosperity gospel. Not not the kind of prosperity gospel you see on TV. This is true prosperity. I think there are two main reasons we struggle with contentedness. I I know the reasons I struggle with it, and so if you're anything like me, you're going to be right there with me. Uh, One reason we struggle with contentedness is we're not relying on the strength of Christ. Uh, We're more like the Stoics. We're trying to make it through on our own. And secondly, we struggle with Christ being our ultimate treasure and source of satisfaction. And I want to close us this morning by zeroing in on this issue because it's something every one of us struggles with, and this is really where the rubber hits the road, I think, in regards to contentment. In Scripture, the opposite of biblical contentment is covetousness. Here's a definition of covetousness, and I'm going to adapt this from something I heard John Piper say once. Covetousness is desiring something not for God's glory or desiring something in such a way that we lose our contentment, satisfaction, and joy in God. Or... Desiring something outside of God to the point that we feel like we have to have it for us to be happy, content, and satisfied. There are a host of things in your life that are competing with God to be the source of your ultimate joy and satisfaction. There are things in your life that you are tempted to to, to bank your hopes for contentment on that are competing with God. The most famous verse on coveting is probably the 10th commandment in the book of Exodus, where God says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. 
God is warning us here about becoming obsessed with these things. So if we get so consumed with these things that we're saying things uh, like, if I only had that house, then I'd be good. If only I had a wife like that, then I'd be happy. Or a husband like that. That's covetousness. That's turning away from God as the source of our satisfaction and turning and seeking these other things to fill us up, and that is diametrically opposed to biblical contentment. And it's not just obviously bad things that we covet, right? It's good things. A lot of times we covet things that are in and of themselves okay. A healthier body, a healthier marriage, food, a job, right? Those are good things. Uh, You should want those things, and you should be praying for those things. But if we are not careful, even those things can stir up within us a, a sinful discontent and covetousness. And they can consume us to the point where that's all we think about. And it is a it is a insane obsession where those things begin to displace God as the number one focus of our life and our highest treasure, and our happiness rises and falls on those things outside of God. And that is deadly, and it is satanic, and God wants to show us that ultimately that is idolatry. Apostle Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, he says, put to death covetousness, which is idolatry. So I'm not making this up. Like the Bible calls covetousness idolatry. So idolatry is more than just bowing down to metal or stone images, little Buddha figurines. Much more, much bigger than that. And the reason why the Bible calls covetousness idolatry is because whatever we treasure and value the most is our God. Whatever we pursue the hardest is our God. That thing that we bank our hope and happiness and well-being on more than anything else is our God. And so our whole life then becomes catered to that thing, is based on that thing, is influenced by that thing, is about appeasing that thing. Anything that is coming into your life, bad or good, and you find your affections for that thing competing with and exalting itself above your affections for God That's a serious red flag. Know that you're in dangerous territory. This covetous idolatry goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when our forefather Adam stretched out his hand to take that fruit, seeking satisfaction in something outside of God. And instead, it brought about his own destruction and the undoing of the cosmos. That was a bad day. And that's the sad and twisted irony of covetousness. We have deep needs and aches in our soul, and we turn away from the one who can satisfy our deepest needs, and we turn to seek satisfaction in empty things that will never fill us up and actually, in the end, will destroy us. This is exactly what God is warning us against through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 2, where God says, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. 
That's a shocking verse for a lot of reasons. I mean, one of the reasons why that verse is shocking to me is when you think about the most appalling and heinous of sins, what are the things that come to our mind? You know, murder, abuse, you know, all, all these you know, rotten things. Those, those are appalling. Those are shocking. Those are disgusting. But here, though, we learn that the essence of evil and the essence of sin is to pursue satisfaction outside of God. That's probably a revelation for some of you. God's saying here in Jeremiah 2, not only have you turned from me the fountain of living waters, that's bad enough, but the other great evil you are committing is that you have hewn out your own cisterns. You are seeking to quench your thirst. You're seeking satisfaction elsewhere, but doing so is like trading in living water for nasty, bug-infested cistern water. And actually, it's worse than that, because God says that your cisterns are broken. They don't even hold water. They're empty. All the water has leaked out, and so sludge is left. You're trading living, fresh, life-giving spring water for nasty, disgusting sludge. That's what sin is. And when your contentment is not found in the Lord, and you seek it elsewhere, and when you start coveting after other things, God calls that appalling. He calls it shocking. He calls it evil. And it is self-destructive because if that is like your way of life, it, it, it will, you will die of thirst in the end. When you think about it, all sin in the end is an attempt to fulfill our needs outside of God. And so, if we go back to 2 Corinthians 12, we can get an even clearer sense of what is driving Paul. Paul's talking about being content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. He's not going to broken cisterns, banking his hopes on immediate relief from the weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamity. You can bet he wants relief. I guarantee you, he doesn't want to be beaten. But relief from those things isn't his God. And so if relief doesn't happen, his world isn't shattered. Paul's passion to see God glorified in his weakness and in his trials trumps the desire for immediate relief. And I beg God to make your pastor into that kind of person so I can help you to be that kind of person. That God would make us in 2019 into a people that has that same kind of one-track obsession for Jesus Christ, as exemplified by Paul. We need prayer because our sinful flesh does not naturally see Jesus as worth all of that. Our sinful flesh does not naturally see Jesus as worth calamities and insults and persecution and, and, and suffering and all those, those sorts of things. Our sinful flesh doesn't naturally see Jesus for the treasure that He really is. Our sinful flesh tells us that whatever we're going to have for lunch after the service is more exciting and interesting than Jesus. Don't tell me you don't know what I'm talking about. Our hobbies are more captivating. Our job, our families, our vacations. We need God to do a big-time supernatural work in our hearts in 2019 if we're going to get anything close to what is exemplified here in the Scriptures. 
Your whole life and my whole life on this side of heaven will be ongoing, intense warfare against our idolatrous tendencies. Prone to wander, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. There's been some pushback against that song lately. Well, well, Christians who are growing and sanctifying the Lord, they, they can't identify with that. I can identify with that. So fire me. And you come and pastor. So where does that leave us? Well, some of you may feel pretty beat up and guilty this morning after all of that. And my purpose this morning is not to beat you up. My purpose is to give you hope. And it's to give me hope as well. I want you to see that I need this message as much, if not more, than you. We humans, we have gotten it wrong for so long. We want joy. We want peace. We want contentment. We want to be satisfied and filled up, and that's a good thing, by the way. We were designed to be filled up by something. But we embraced the foolish notion that God, the fountain of living waters, was not ultimately what we needed. And we turned around, and we hewed out these cisterns, Cisterns of money and possessions, cisterns of sex, cisterns of worldly pleasures, cisterns of marriage and family, cisterns of hobbies and entertainment, cisterns of ministry and good deeds. And we have banked everything on these and other cisterns, and they are broken and they are empty. And in the end, all of these things will disappoint us and will not deliver. The psalmist says in Psalm 16, 4, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. But, the psalmist goes on to say a few verses later, he contrasts our worthless idols with the living God, and he says this in Psalm 16 and 11, you have made known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. So here's where the hope comes in. If you've been spending your time amongst the broken cisterns, and if you are ready for something better, God is ready to give it to you. If the essence of sin is rejecting the living water that is God, the sign of God's eagerness to forgive and show mercy is an invitation to return to the water, and the sign of our repentance is to come running, to come running to the water. And so you have God's gracious invitation In Isaiah 55, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why, why, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food, incline your ear, and come to me here that your soul may live. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. God extends a gracious invitation to us cistern drinkers. If you realize your sin and you call upon God for mercy, He will supply it abundantly. How do you do that? How do you come to God? You come to God by coming to Jesus. Jesus stood up and cried out in John chapter 7, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. You realize how amazing that is? Jesus is identifying Himself with Isaiah 55. He is showing us that this great God who mercifully offered water to the thirsty in Isaiah 55 is none other than himself. 
Whether you're a Christian or not, there is hope for you this morning. Now, if you're a Christian and you've realized that you've been failing in this area and chasing after these other cisterns, remember what the Apostle John said in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is zero need for you to walk out of here with guilt this morning. And if you're not a believer this morning, if you're not a Christian, there is wonderfully good news for you. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He's near. He may have compassion on Him, for He will abundantly pardon. There is abundant pardon available for you, abundant forgiveness, abundant mercy. See, the Bible says that the penalty for sin, for turning away from that fountain of living water and and hewing out our own cisterns, the penalty for that is death. And, And the penalty for that is to be forever separated from God in the next age in pain and torment, unable to quench that burning thirst for living water, always thirsty, never satisfied, that's hell. We all deserve it. But God sent Jesus into the world to save sinners from that hellish eternity. And so Jesus, as He was hanging crucified on the cross, received the death penalty, received the torment, received the wrath of God, and experienced the fullness of hell. He paid that price uh, so that those seeking God's mercy would not have to pay it themselves. He drank every drop of that cup full of God's wrath so that, he wouldn't, so that, so that you wouldn't have to drink it. So that all who cry out for mercy receive not a cup of wrath, but an overflowing fountain, a never-ending fountain of living water. And so you have two choices. One is to pay for your sin debt yourself, and that means forever drinking from God's wrath in hell forever. Or you can place your trust in Jesus' payment for your sins and dive headfirst into the crystal clear, clean, thirst-quenching, all-satisfying water that is found in God alone and enjoy that forever. But for all of us in this room, believer or unbeliever, ultimately the message is the same. Turn away from banking your hope for a great 2019 in other things. Come to Christ. Drink from Him. And to the degree that you do that will be the degree that we experience true peace and contentment no matter what happens this new year. Let's pray.